There at the bottom of page 12, this is question and answer 54 through 56. Let's read these responsibly. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. Of this community, I am and always will be a living member. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, one and all, as members of Christ the Lord, have communion with Him and share in all His treasures and gifts. Second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by His grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. We have heard Scripture. We have heard it summarized. Let's go now to the Lord and ask for His help to understand and to apply it. our lives. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us now in grace as we look away from ourselves and into the face of your Son, whom you have appointed our mediator and Savior. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and edification of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. We pray this in the name and favor of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and in dependence on his Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We've come to the section of the Creed, as it is explained for us in the Heidelberg Catechism where we say that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. And especially because the topic of church and church members and what we are calling here the communion of the saints are are hot topics in our day and age because we are living in a time where authority is suspect in the eyes of many, institutionalism is suspect in the eyes of many. We're going to spend our time looking at those concepts from question and answer 54 and 55, and you can rest assured we will speak a lot about the forgiveness of sins when we come to the doctrine of justification, which is still to come in the Catechism. So we're, we're focusing today particularly on the fact that we are members of Christ's body. We are part of a holy gathering. I want us to focus this evening on three aspects of that gathering. The first is that we are a gathering of the Spirit and the Word. The church is the gathering of the Spirit and the Word. Like creation at the very beginning, the church is the creation of the Word and the Spirit. God spoke and the Spirit hovered and all things came into being. 
and we're organized and structured and ordered. And this is how it is with the church because we are a new creation. We are the testimony in the world that God is making all things new. That is what people ought to be able to recognize when they see the church. The people of God in every age have not actually been brought together because of common interests. We may have common interests, but we may not. That's completely beside the point when it comes to being brothers and sisters in God's family. We have rather come together and been gathered because God spoke through his son and through the working of the Holy Spirit. He has created a people for himself. So we are made as the people of God. We are constituted as a people because of God's word. We don't make the word or choose what constitutes the word. That's one of the errors of Rome, choosing the canon of of Holy Scripture. But we submit ourselves fully to the authority of the word of God, recognizing that it has made us, not the other way around. We see this in an Old Testament form in our reading from Genesis 26. God made promises to the patriarchs. To Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth. He made promises to them like the one we read earlier. He said to Isaac, I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. A passing down of the covenant promises. First made to Abraham, now passed on to a new generation. God continues, he says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. What begins here in the first book of the Bible as very narrow, particular promise to a particular people in a pretty narrow place in the Middle East will have ramifications For the entire world, God promises. Through your offspring, he says, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The message here, the message, this promise delivered from God to the patriarchs results in a people being made. It's not just a covenant that he's making, but he's making a covenant community chosen for eternal life. And so the word of God makes the church, no matter when that church happens to be, Old Testament, New Testament, the word is what makes the church. You might say, how is it that a message creates anything, let alone a group of people? And the answer is that these words that we've just read in Genesis 26 that are found elsewhere are an Old Testament proclamation of the gospel. They are an Old Testament proclamation of the gospel. Paul says so in Galatians chapter 3. As Paul, the Christ-appointed apostle to the Gentiles, is looking back on the covenant promises, as he is looking back on the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament, he says this. He says, Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. 
There's that promise that we just read in Genesis 26. That God says to Abraham and to Isaac and to all the patriarchs. And when Paul looks at that message, that proclamation, he says, that is the gospel in a shadowy form. In an Old Testament form. It hasn't been fully fleshed out through his son Jesus Christ, through the son of the father yet. And yet it is a word of the gospel. The glad tidings that God is coming into the world to save sinners, to create a people for his own name, to win them for himself. When the word of the gospel and the power of the Spirit are united together, hearts are opened, and people who were once alienated from God are brought into God's family. And so a people is made, a church is created through the Spirit and through the Word of God. This is still true today. Although now, we have the benefit of that gospel being fully fleshed out through our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, which we read from earlier, Jesus speaks of the church as a flock of sheep. And He says that His sheep hear His voice. Those who truly belong to Him know what his voice sounds like and they come and follow him they listen they're part of the sheepfold what is it that they hear when the shepherd speaks here's what they hear they hear the shepherd saying i lay down my life for the sheep that is now the gospel message fully fleshed out through jesus christ how is it that the offspring of the patriarchs is going to somehow be a blessing to all the nations, to all the world. How's it going to come about? Through Jesus Christ laying down his life for a people. Not, not just one particular people in one part of the world, but for people drawn from every tribe and tongue and language. Sheep from all over. As he says, uh, you're part of my sheep, but I've got sheep from somewhere else too that I need to bring in. Jews and Gentiles together. And I lay down my life for them all. So again, in our day, it is the word, a message like this one, that he lays down his life. That is what creates the church. Scripture speaks of this church in a few ways. There are, for instance, there are all those who believe in Jesus Christ with a true faith in all places, in all times, whether they are alive now or whether they have died in the Lord. In that last category, those saints who have departed to be with the Lord, here's how Hebrews chapter 12 speaks of them. Hebrews 12 says that they are the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. They are the church. They are the assembly of the firstborn. They, though they are dead, are no less a part of the holy Catholic church than we are who have true faith in the Son of God. Sometimes this, this entity that we're speaking of, of all believers, all true believers, sometimes this is referred to as the invisible church. The invisible church. Not because we are speaking of some other church, other than Christ's church. What we're saying when we use that phrase is that only God perfectly knows who belongs to him. We can do our very best, and we have, the Scripture gives us ample tools to try to, 
to uh, come to terms with credible professions of faith in the church. And uh, unless somebody is clearly walking away from the faith, we treat all the brothers and sisters as struggling saints. We are sinners, but we are righteous, and we are being made holy through Jesus Christ. And so we recognize all to be brothers and sisters in this church. And yet, only God knows perfectly who belongs to him. In this sense, the Holy Catholic Church is invisible. It is an invisible entity that God alone sees and knows. And it is this particular category of the church that is in mind when the Catechism speaks of the Holy Catholic Church. And when the Creed speaks of the Holy Catholic Church. All believers, in all times, in all places, dead or alive. But the Bible also speaks of a visible expression of that community, especially a local expression. And so the fact that there is a holy Catholic church and only God knows who belongs to it does not mean that then it can kind of manifest itself, express itself in any old way. But necessarily it expresses itself in visible forms and especially locally, especially in the local church. Sometimes these flocks of the visible church, so to speak, are made up of sheep and goats, which is the Bible's metaphor for unbelievers who are still in the church, maybe living outward lives, acting like sheep in some ways, but have not actually believed savingly in Jesus Christ. Visible churches also include sometimes wolves in sheep's clothing who are false teachers seeking to scatter the sheep as Jesus warns about here and as Paul warns about in Acts chapter 20. He tells the elders of Ephesus, wolves are going to rise up among you and seek to scatter the sheep and you must kick them out. So we have a mixture in the visible church. The invisible church, again, those are true believers. God knows who belongs to him and will never let them out of his hand. But there are those who are what the Christian faith is traditionally called hypocrites, who in their hearts have not trusted in Christ. And for whatever reason, they, they, they enjoy the, the, uh, the play performance of religion. And it gives them some sense of stability, some sense of meaning and so forth. So it is a gathering. The church is the gathering of the Spirit and the Word. And now we have some distinctions that we have made between the invisible and the visible church. And how we find a mixture of people within the visible church in this present evil age. Secondly, the church is a gathering of safety. The church is to be a gathering of safety. The Catechism points out in question and answer 54 that the Son of God gathers protects and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life. Listen to those verbs again. The Son of God gathers, protects, and preserves those who belong to him. It is he who has chosen a people for himself, and he preserves them to the very end. And this is what I'm referring to when I speak of the church being a gathering of safety. The prophets spoke of a day when God's people would sit under their own vines and their own fig trees and no one would make them afraid. 
There'd be no threat from the outside, no threat from within either. These images from the prophets, which we find multiple times, are images of enjoyment and of safety. You'll sit under your own vine and fig tree, just like sometimes you sit around a fire pit on your own property with people you love. There's no time constraints. The rare occasion in your life when there's no time constraints. You're getting to have lovely conversation with people you care about. It's that kind of a thing. There's nothing making you anxious in the moment. There's no threat. And these are your things that have been gifted to you by God and you're enjoying them. That safety and that enjoyment will be one of the key marks of the new creation. God's people will sit under, under their own vines and fig trees and there, there will be no one who will make them afraid. No threats from without or from within. But in this present evil age, we ought to experience this safety best in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this again in John chapter 10 where Jesus says that he is not only the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, but also he's the door to the sheep pen, verse 9. And because of this, he defends his sheep from thieves and robbers, verses 8 and 10, and from wolves, verse 12. He gathers, he protects, and he preserves his people. It is true that, again, in this age, where we are waiting for the new creation to unfold fully, the church is mixed. The church is mixed. The parables speak about this in in kind of amazing ways. Uh, The church is a field with both wheat and tares. And Jesus says, don't pluck them up before their time. Don't try to go and figure out which ones are the tares and pluck them up before time. You don't really know. (laughs) God is the one who knows. He sees with this perfection. And so the church in this age is mixed. The devil is permitted to tempt. Sometimes false teachers come into our midst. Sometimes those called to be shepherds end up being abusers instead. And because we are weak like sheep, we are vulnerable to those harms. And they are everywhere. Wherever there's a church, we are susceptible to these harms. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul gives a long list of things that trouble us, even in the church. Trials and persecution and famine, danger, nakedness, sword, all kinds of tribulation. And he admits that it's this very kind of situation that is very dangerous and trouble surrounds us that makes us, as Christians, cry out, we are regarded as sheep being led to the slaughter. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. He's quoting a psalm. And he says, all the stuff around us make, makes us just want to say, we're not just the sheep of, of the flock. We're not just the sheep of the good shepherd. But it's like sometimes we're sheep being led to the slaughter. And uh, that would uh, really depress us, if not for what Paul says next. He says, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this world is filled with trouble. This world is filled with devils and with evil and with all kinds of dangers. And yet, none of those things separate God's true people from his love in Jesus Christ. Because Christ the shepherd gathers, preserves, and protects a people for himself. Perhaps you have firsthand experience with these kinds of dangers infiltrating the church. 
Maybe you've seen it, experienced it yourself. It is right to mourn and to grieve that these things are in the church of the living God. But our grief must be mingled with a confident lifting of our eyes back to the Good Shepherd. The safety that he provides is an objective kind of safety. It's a transcendent kind of safety, which means we may be experiencing all kinds of dangers and trials, but Christ still holds us in his hand. He is still gathering, still protecting, still preserving us. He will bring us safely to the harbor of his kingdom. And when we look to the Good Shepherd in the midst of these dangers, what it will remind us of is that the worst evils in this world will be worked out for our salvation. So while we wait for the new creation to come, let's look to Jesus Christ who experienced the worst possible evil and his father turned it to the best possible good. And if he has done this for his son, he will do it for his church. So we can face dangers in this present evil age and know that he still keeps us safe. And so... If that's the case, let's make our church a citadel of safety for the members and of safety for our covenant children. Let's be tender-hearted toward those who are hurting and stern with those who abuse. Let's practice these virtues, especially when it comes to those who have no voice for themselves and are clearly oppressed or up against the ropes in life. And we will be a church that reflects the safety that Christ offers to his sheep. Lastly, the church is a gathering of service. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul famously compares the church to a body. And his main point in that comparison is that all the members of Christ's body are necessary. All members of Christ's body are necessary. What is Paul's purpose in telling us that? He says, So that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. That is a very lovely image of the church. And one that the church always falls short of. And so we we have to live with that. We are sinners, and we are never living up to this wonderful standard. But when we look to Christ when we ask him to make us one and to fulfill this command, he will help us to do so more and more. Now, what we have to recognize here is that we're not on our own as we're trying to live this out and looking to each other as, uh, as uh, co-members of the body of Christ who are honored through Christ. We're not on our own. When our Lord ascended into heaven, we know from Scripture that he poured out gifts from on high. <coughs> And everyone who is a part of his body has been gifted. We have a multitude of, and a diversity of gifts, but we all have gifts. And each person who is united to Jesus Christ, who is the head of this body, is then by necessity a participant in the gifts. He is the head, we are the body. If he's poured out the gifts, then every member of his body has gifts. And if Jesus, the head, has so served us, let us, his members, learn to serve one another with the gifts he's given. That is what the catechism teaches. 
We are to use our gifts. Having received them from Christ, we are to use our gifts to serve and to enrich the lives of the other members. Service does not mean taking an aptitude test, finding out your particular strengths, and then serving only when those things can be exercised. Service in Christ's body begins less with aptitude and more with attitude. What is your attitude towards your brother and sister is the the beginning question. Because our attitude is meant to reflect God's attitude toward his people. What is his attitude towards his people? It is an attitude of everlasting grace. That's actually what grace is. Grace isn't this substance. It is a divine attitude of favor toward the people of God. And we, having experienced this grace, ought to extend it now to our brothers and sisters in this body of Christ. So what is your attitude toward your fellow members? Do you see yourself as a strong hand and your sister as a fingernail? Do you see yourself as a mouth and your brother as a toe? How do you see yourself? How do you conceive of yourself? And how do you conceive of your brothers and sisters? What is your attitude toward them? Let it be an attitude of grace and forbearance and forgiveness that you might serve one another out of grace. Learn to live in peace with one another and to forgive each other when we wrong each other. Open your homes and learn together to open your homes to outsiders that we might show what the church of Christ is to be like. A place of safety, gathered by the word and spirit, and do these things without fear, knowing that your good shepherd has gathered you into his flock, not with a weak word, but with a powerful word, the message of the gospel that says, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Father, we give you thanks for having established your covenant with believers and their children. For as you have told us, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Father, we pray, continue to establish your saints in this faith throughout their lives. Give us the grace to inwardly digest the food you have given us and to instruct our children in your knowledge and fear until they have reached complete maturity. All of this we ask in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.